0: listening to the Red Sea Podcast. Red Sox fans have long to hear it. The Boston Red Sox are
1: world champions. Hosted by Jake Devereaux. It's gone. It's in the bullpen. This game
0: is tied. This game is tied. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. David
2: Ortiz.
0: Featuring Keaton DeRocher and Bob Osgood.
2: Sale winds. He fires. Swing it. back to the Red Seat Podcast. This is your host, Jake Devereaux. Today I'm joined by Keaton DeRocher and Bob Osgood of Over the Monster for episode 304 of the podcast. If you want to email this podcast, you can do so at redseatpodcast at gmail.com. Bob, Keaton, how are we doing today? Oh, you
0: know, as good as one can be doing if you're trapped in a hotel in Mississippi because it snowed.
2: It snowed in Mississippi? Oh, yeah. Wow. That's unusual, Um, Bob. Are you uh, in the great state of Massachusetts?
1: I am, and I just wanted to start by saying, I think in some past episodes I might have set the bar a little bit high, and it probably wasn't the most artful thing that I could have said. Um, So I apologize if I was—I could have been more artful.
0: Which (laughs) which bar?
1: The bar. I set the bar maybe a little high. The bar. Yeah. The bar. Yeah. I could have been more artful.
2: Well, can you lead us in a chant of Let's Go Red Sox?
1: <laughs> you just want to start a chair? <laughs> Let's
2: go Red Sox. That is pretty good. Yeah, that is pretty go good. Go Red Sox. <laughs> All right. <Hello>. Well, <laughs> well, on today's episode, um, we're going to be talking about Tom Warner, who is kind enough to join us on the podcast. And. Um, We're going to be talking about some comments that Breslau made, uh, the January 15th um, signings that the Red Sox have made, international signings, and then we're going to get to some Boston team rankings in the uh, following categories, relevancy, closest to a championship, and future you are most confident about. And then we'll get some listener questions and get on out of here. But let's get started. We have a lot to talk about today, and I think we should lead with the Breslow quotes. Um, In in an article with the Boston Globe, uh, he was quoted as saying um, that essentially, uh, well, I'll just read the quote. This conversation probably quickly bleeds into the overall direction of the club. And I don't think it makes a ton of sense to give up some of our prospects for pitchers that don't come with a ton of control just given the emergence of this young core around who we intend to build." He goes on to say, but I think uh, the reality is that it's going to require a step forward from the young position players, require the build out of talent, of a talent pipeline, of arms that we can acquire, we draft, and we can develop internally. and It's going to require aggressive player development in the minor leagues. the major leagues so guys that we think are the next wave meyer anthony teal that group are not just big leaguers but impact big leaguers the convergence of all of those pieces is the fastest path to a world series team we want to build this thing in a way that's not just quality once in a while but quality paired with consistency so all of those quotes were in relation to um you know him being asked about kind of missing out on the, the main goal of this off season so far, which is uh, acquiring high level pitching and generally just high level talent for the full throttle Red Sox. So let's start with you, uh, Keaton. What were your thoughts on these quotes about waiting for this next tier and sort of looking internally rather than externally uh, when building the next, you know, future championship team.
0: Yeah. I had, uh, two thoughts. One was, he just said, not like two weeks ago that they need to be prepared to trade top prospects for talented, young, controllable pitching, which immediately set off all the, uh, Logan Gilbert, Kirby stuff. um, but now he's saying those same same people we should be prepared to trade are uh now the the core of the team and aren't going anywhere. So it's a this is a quick one eighty. But my second thought was great, someone finally said what we've all known for years. And uh I while I feel better about that, it doesn't make it any less annoying. But this is the first time that they've somebody from the organization has acknowledged what the plan was. I mean this was essentially what bloom was trying to do um but wasn't quite as effective as uh Brezzo at least appears to be through uh one off season but or you know partial off season but it it's just it feels a little bit of better or maybe offers a little bit of relief that um they're now saying it out loud too instead of saying well <laughs> i guess a they started the offseason by saying they were going all in, just like they had been at every every offseason or every trade deadline leading up to this, and now they're just kind of finally acknowledging it. And I wonder how much of that has to do with they were not competitive uh, in the slightest, and the guys that they thought that they had a chance to get to be complementary pieces to that young core as they grew, uh, they whiffed on everybody, basically. And so they really kind of had to acknowledge it because – they very clearly weren't going full throttle or whatever terminology you, you want to use. But this is what I've been asking for. I mean, this was my New Year's resolution here was to have the actions match the words. And finally, the words are matching their actions. So uh, it doesn't make it an, any less annoying. doesn't mean they shouldn't have said this years ago. But the fact that they at least now are coming around and somebody is saying it, that there's going to be a bridge year or two before... We really kind of pump up this young core and we still want to kind of, you know, focus on that. I'm okay with that. But I just, the frustration from my end just came from just blatantly lying to the fans about trying to feel the competitive team and then not coming anywhere close. So I just feel happy that they said it and now their actions match their words. And I hope that that continues and they don't uh, start trying
1: to pass around a bunch of bullshit again. Do
2: you feel better now that they've said the quiet part out loud, Bob?
1: I don't. Not at all. I think that's a, a really good point, Keaton, that you made about the controllable pitching because I kept thinking, wow, they want three, four years of controllable pitching, and we did segments breaking down who might possibly be fitting in that category in Seattle and on other teams, and then did they think that they weren't going to have to give Meyer, Anthony, or Teal away to get young controllable pitching that is going to have three or four years remaining like I don't know what they were expecting to trade in that scenario they certainly weren't going to get a number two or ace pitcher for that so yeah they did a 180 on that they did a 180 on the full throttle they've been lying the whole offseason They've been kicking the can down the road for five years. They were so afraid to admit to a rebuild, or I feel like if they just did that in 2020 or 2021 and said that this is going to be a rebuild for a couple of years and then our window starts here, and it's like if they just came out and said things and weren't so cowardly about all of it, then maybe I would understand it more. But they are finally saying this at the end of the off season of year number five of this. You know the 20 21 22 23 and 24 seasons that all just feel like mini retools and they're giving out more one and two year deals you know this time around it's not garrett richards it's not martin perez or michael Walker, or adam duvall but it's different names
2: might be adam duvall still don't don't uh, it it might be adam duvall again
1: yeah and it's Uh, tyler o'neill and it's lucas giolito and yeah full throttle was a bunch of bullshit and going after starting pitching was too and it's just yeah this is what we knew and have known for a while but couldn't say with certainty and sure keaton now we can we can say that we know great yeah i
2: mean i i guess i feel two ways about this you know i i kind of feel like I'm happy that they finally admitted that this is what they're doing, but also I'm disappointed because I did think there was enough public ple- pressure on um, the Red Sox ownership to start spending again after the Bloom strategy didn't work out. And, um, you know, ultimately, like we've been over this on the show before, but I think it's worth saying again. I think Bloom was actually doing a pretty poor job at trying to build internally, so I'm glad they switched that up, even if this remains the plan. But I, I am still disappointed because I think, like, and Lou Merloni has tweeted this as well. We've talked about it a bunch. I mean, if you just go out and sign Jorge Soler and Jordan Montgomery, um, this is a competitive team for this year. And, and I don't understand the unwillingness to do that. Um, you know, it seems like there's, there's plenty of money to spend and, and plenty of ways to get that done. So I'm disappointed they're not going to do that. I also think that what we've learned from this is because he did name the top three prospects in the system, I think that does leave the door open for trades involving players like Sinan Rafael and Miguel Blaise, Nick York, you know, guys in that type of category, which I, I think could still get some really interesting players um, back here. And he's shown a willingness. Breslow has um, to be willing to deal uh, players from this team, and he's you know he's he's already made a number of deals so far. So I still feel better about the direction of the team, but I can't help feeling really disappointed that like the roster that the Red Sox have right now is probably pretty close to the roster that they are going to go into this year with in spring training because. To me, this probably ends up being, like, best-case scenario, a third- or a fourth-place team. It's hard to imagine this team competing for a playoff spot with the way that it's currently constructed.
1: Yeah, I mean, and you're referencing the three prospects, and they're really kind of putting it out there that those are the three guys that are going to be the next core alongside Cassus endeavors and it's very possible but it's really unlikely that all 3 of those are going to hit. And I thought Dan Dan Secatori had a great tweet last night. He said from 2010 to 2019 32 players were ranked as top 3 prospects on Sox Prospects website and 18 of those 32 were fewer than 2 WAR for their entire career. 13 of those 32 were 0 or less. And two of the guys that we're talking about that were positives were Xander Bogarts and Mookie Betts, and we know where they are now. Um, we've talked about the prospects that go at the trade deadline and what the percentage of those that hit. I mean, it's not impossible, but it's really unlikely that all three of those are going to be core pieces in the long term, and they're throwing those names out there. And you're right, they're identifying who... Are kind of the untouchables, it seems like, and that they might move some of the other guys, but it's none of those are a sure thing. Um, hopefully, two of them are.
2: Yeah, I, I just don't get the the unwillingness to spend money here. Um, especially, we got a little bit more data from Breslow about what the rotation is going to look like. He identified Giolito, Bayo, Cutter Crawford, and Nick Pavetta as being locked into the first four. Rotation spots with Tanner Houck, Garrett Whitlock, and Josh Winkowski uh, battling out for the fifth spot. Um, that was a little surprising to me. I would have assumed that Tanner Houck would have been locked into that spot. So, kind of interesting that he still views Tanner Houck as sort of a fringy starter there. But it, it's not um, difficult to imagine like what the stability of a Jordan Mong- Montgomery would do at the top of that rotation, um, you know, a guy who's going to take the ball every fifth day, very durable, you know, even if he has a bad season and he's like a four ERA guy, he's still going to be like a two or three war pitcher, um, considering his durability and stuff like that. So I, I have trouble seeing the downside, especially, you know, given that he is a lefty as well. It just seems like an incredible fit for the team. Um, I'm just really surprised that they're unwilling to Pay a pitcher long term. It seems like this order must be coming from the top down, um, from from John Henry. That you know, paying pitchers who are you know approaching their 30s or past 30 is just not something that the Red Sox are willing to do. What do you guys think about that? Do you do you think that is an order that's coming from Henry down?
1: I don't know if it's specifically that, um, or it's just that what it would take to sign Montgomery would mean you'd have to unload salary elsewhere. And I mean, looking at, there's varying numbers, but Sox payroll is around 201, 202. Looking at the Google sheet and the CBT is 237. And the first uh, luxury tax penalty is 257. And they're $55 million away from that. And this whole time, it's like, you know, they should be able to go up near that first, you know, up towards the second penalty, right? Which would be 255, 257. I mean, it's just crazy to think that whether it's a trade that they didn't make early on, whether it's Yamamoto, whether it's Montgomery, um they might not be able to afford Solaire that they couldn't afford Teoscar Hernandez without moving somebody out. I don't know if it's specifically pitching. It would be disappointing if it is because they talked about that being a focus early on. They called that out, that that's what they wanted to improve. They haven't improved their staff, in my opinion. So I don't know if it's specifically that, but something's coming down from the top that is restricting Breslau, you'd have to think.
0: Yeah. I feel the same. I think there's got to be something coming down from the top because there is no reason at all that a big market team should not be spending money to add talent to the club. And honestly, this pitching rotation looks pretty sad. Like, we're banking on the fact that Giolito bounces back to A status, and there's a very real possibility that he doesn't. And that four is sad.
1: What if it's that and Poop Vettas back?
0: Yeah, and you know how I feel about that. I do. I'm only really going to watch one every five days. I'm just going to watch Bayo start, and then the rest is nonsense.
2: Yeah, I mean, looking at the rotation right now, um, these are the ERAs of the projected five pitchers from 2023. 4.88 for Giolito, 4.04 for Pavetta, and a lot of that was – you know, buoyed by his performance in the pen. Bayo 4.24, Hauk 5.01, and Cutter Crawford 4.04. So it's. Uh, there is a scenario here where next year all of these guys pitch like fours or fives. Uh, even Bayo has that potential to kind of slide backwards. Um, yeah. You know, we all hope that he's going to take the step forward and that Giolito is going to regain his form and maybe Hulk finally figure something else out. But uh, yeah, this, this rotation does not inspire a lot of confidence. It's a uh, whole lot of ifs.
1: It's
2: a whole lot of ifs. And that's just what we've had for so long now, um, for, for way too long. But I do think that there is something to the idea of uh, John Henry being extra gun shy when it comes to pitchers, especially because of what happened with, um, Chris Sale there. Uh, I am a little surprised, too, to hear that <clears throat> Garrett Whitlock and Josh Winkowski are potentially competing for a rotation spot. And I know, Bob, you're probably psyched that uh, Winkowski and, and Whitlock, well, Whitlock especially, is um, you know getting another chance to potentially compete for that back-end spot. But You know, what do you guys think of that? Because Winkowski especially I thought was a bit of a revelation when he was in the pen last year. I wouldn't want to move him out of that role. Uh, And Whitlock just scares the hell out of me with his health issues.
0: All three of those guys are fantastic in the pen. And I think that's where they belong to really kind of stabilize that. Uh, I... (laughs) really would love for them to go outside the org to fill that fifth spot and not the fifth spot, but like one of the top three spots. Um, But I, I think they could have a top five, maybe even top three bullpen. If all three of those guys are there.
1: Yeah. (sighs) I mean, I'm going to make the same case that I had before. I, I think that Whitlock deserves a shot to compete for the fifth spot um but I also think that they need another starter. Now, I was anticipating Whitlock competing with either Pavetta or Cutter Crawford for that spot and that there's a good chance that one of them um beat him out for that job. I think that he's putting two of those as definites, which is interesting. Um I don't know. I I go back to there was a stretch of 5 or 6 starts where Whitlock was going 6 to 7 innings per start and that was this past year. That's not 2 years ago. That was in May and June of this year where he was keeping his pitch count down, 85, 90 pitches. And his changeup was excellent and I wrote an article about this earlier in the offseason kind of about that stretch. Um I understand and I'm not going to like be irate if he ends up in the bullpen. I'm just not surprised that they want to kind of give that one more shot. I am surprised by Winkowski. I don't really understand what the benefit of that is. It didn't work out too well in the rotation the first time around. He's kind of found a role that he is comfortable with and that he at times thrived in last year and you know, I, I'm guessing it's the kind of thing where it's just to keep him stretched out and maybe he ends up transitioning to be a long man, someone that can go multiple innings in the bullpen, so they want to stretch him out earlier in the year. I I would be really surprised if he was a starter in April.
0: I also just want to point out that while well, you're right, there was that stretch where he was going six, seven innings and outing. It was three games.
1: That he went. That he went what? He went six
0: and a third, seven and seven in three straight starts, uh, in June. Yep. There was only mm-hmm. three starts. Only three.
1: Yeah, and then he got hurt, right after that. So that was his, and he had a seven-inning outing in April. So of his first eight starts of the year, three of those he went seven innings, and one he went six and a third, and then he got hurt. So it wouldn't surprise me if he got hurt again, but I think early on it was tracking pretty well, and then he got lit up a couple of times, and then he got hurt twice, and the end of the year his ERA was 515, and it looked terrible. Well, the bottom but, line I think is think they this. extended him for a reason
2: we we should not be discussing Garrett Whitlock needing to be auditioning for a spot in the rotation at, at this point, you know it like even in your scenario where he is competing with uh, Cutter Crawford and Nick Pavetta for a spot, like y- you still feel better about that than than what's going on here with those other two guys completely locked in. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's definitely a sad state of things. And I think that um, Werner, who's been getting roasted for his full throttle comments, um, had uh, some more comments to say in a Sean McAdam article. He said, maybe that wasn't the most artful way of saying what I wanted to say, which is that we're going to be pressing all levers to improve the team. In the end, nobody's happy with our performance the last few years some years we go after somebody who is about to be a free agent or was a free agent, as it pertains to Trevor Story or Rafi Devers. And then he went on to talk about um, his unsuccessful run uh, at Yoshin- Yoshinobu Yamamoto, a 25-year-old Japanese starting pitcher. He says, certainly aren't happy with the current roster as it was at the end of last year. So if I was going to say it again, I wouldn't say that, wouldn't say that we're pressing all levers uh, and we weren't going to be happy with just one method that includes free agency trades or talent from triple or double A. In the end, we don't have a line in terms of our payroll that we look at as much as at as much as trusting that Craig is going to deliver on his assurance that we're going to be competitive. So my my first couple of takeaways here from the word salad uh, put out by Warner is He's kind of putting a whole hell of a lot on Craig Breslow, especially that line as we look at it as much as trusting Craig Breslow is going to deliver on his assurance that we're going to be competitive. Like it just feels to me like a pretty shitty thing to do to the new general manager to come in and be like, Hey, listen, uh, I want to contend. I want to contend on the cheap. And by the way, you can't sign any of the top starting pitchers out there because we're just not going to green light anything. Like, what the hell is that?
0: I think the main thing with this is the lack of a timeline. Because you can say we're trusting Craig to deliver on a assurance that we're going to be competitive, but competitive when? Because through Craig's own words, it's not this year. So, so you have a three year plan to have a consistently competitive team, five-year plan, one-year plan? Or are you just saying, we'll get there eventually, we'll see?
1: Craig is going to deliver on his assurance that we're going to be competitive. Yes, Tom. You can turn chicken shit into chicken salad with the same payroll and no path to improving the pitching that you're providing him. That was just... I had the same takeaway. Um... Really, as both of you, because I didn't know what that were going to be competitive means. I hope he doesn't mean this year that that that's his expectation. He he came in knowing full well that we have a strong farm system and a need for a stronger competitive team, especially one focused on improved starting pitching. It's immediately making Breslow the scapegoat,
0: like before he's even done anything, which I wouldn't expect anything less. But also the fact that they're all skipping the winter fest is ridiculous. On top of that, but the line too that we don't have a line in terms of payroll. So, Breslow could have been competitive in his offers to Yamamoto or for Otani or for whoever else, but they weren't even close. Didn't even make it to the final round with either of those guys. Or they're continuing to whiff on all the free agents that were left. Yeah, there's no way. There's no way there wasn't a limit. Those things aren't matching up.
2: Yeah, it doesn't pass the smell test. And also, like, when you're in in the position that the Red Sox are in right now where you've been a bit of a joke of an organization for the last five years or so and there's so much instability, um, you're going to have to kind of blow guys out of the water to compete with offers from teams that are legitimate contenders like the Dodgers or, you know, the Atlanta Braves or – uh, the Yankees or, you know, other teams like that. The The Red Sox have kind of done this to themselves where they're no longer a destination that people want to go to if the money is close right now. So, um, you know, the money needs to be more than close. It needs to be better than everybody else.
1: Do, do you guys believe that he meant to say that he'd be pressing all levers when he said full throttle? No,
0: it's, it's the same fucking thing.
1: It's like your kid gets suspended for calling the teacher an asshole. He's like, well, what I meant was I was displeased with how he was teaching the geometry, geometry proofs or something. Like, <laughs> it's
0: <laughs> like what I, mean, what I meant to say was he was a dickhead.
1: <laughs> it's just, no, you said, you said that. You meant that. And you had somebody put something together for you to walk that back and say it a different way that somehow makes less sense
2: yeah <laughs> yeah I mean my main takeaway out of all this is just uh, continued uh, disillusion with the ownership um, they just seem super out of touch especially John Henry's inavailability uh, or unavailability I should say for um, winter weekend I think that was pretty cowardly um, you know it just doesn't look good and I feel for Breslow I think he's got a very Difficult job here. I still am confident in his direction and his ability to to do this, but it's hard to not have Higher expectations for the 2024 season based off of what we're seeing right now Um, When it goes to the team And building for 2024, there's a little bit of news here Apparently the team is still in contact with Adam Duvall and Justin Turner um, they're seemingly not super in the mix for Jorge Soler, the Blue Jays are seen as the favorite there and for Montgomery, it's looking like the Rangers and the Cubs are sort of leading the pack uh, to sign Jordan Montgomery at this point, so um, tough to expect, many fireworks, if, if the Red Sox go into next year um, let's just say they do add Adam Duvall and then call it an off season there. Um, is this a fourth-place team, a fifth-place team? Where do you guys think this team ends up in the division? Yeah, yeah I kind of think so,
1: too. I, I don't think that they are any better than they were a year ago. Now, every team is different, and every clubhouse is different, and things might mesh, and you get the higher outcome on – and we'll break all this down in future episodes, but you get the higher outcome on some of these variance players that anything could happen, especially with pitching. And we do have to remember that they were within two games of a wildcard spot at the trade deadline last year when they did nothing and were using openers. So I think that the one thing that they've done that I would commend is put... I think there's more of a plan for depth at pitching and starting pitchers at AAA that, that kind of happened within trades. Like, I don't think that they'll be using openers 20 or 30 times again next well, they year. they have
2: Dick Fitz now.
1: Right. So <laughs> anytime that you bring Dick Fitz in, <laughs> you've got that depth. <clears throat> I
0: mean, if we're playing the paper game, uh, they're going to need to score seven runs a game to keep up with this rotation. So I don't think that's likely in the slightest.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. They're gonna need a good seven to nine to, uh, you know, stay within the the realm of of uh, possibility for getting those wins. So it's gonna be uh very interesting. But let's get to the uh, January fifteenth uh, international signings that the Red Sox have made. We're not gonna go through all these, especially because you know so little is known about. Uh, guys who are 16, 17 years old signing out of Dominican or Venezuela or wherever else these guys are signing. But I wanted to mention just a, a few of the top signings that uh, that the Red Sox made. Vladimir Asensio, a center fielder from the Dominican Republic, was the Red Sox' uh, first uh, and highest bonus guy. He was $1 million. Um, Carlos Carrasco uh, is a third baseman shortstop from Venezuela. He signed for 590. Edwin Brito is a center fielder from the Dominican. He signed for 450. Um, this is a big one, Dalvison Reyes, a right-handed pitcher from the Dominican. He got $450,000 from the team. Um, that is one of the bigger bonuses given out to a pitcher. And something that the Red Sox really haven't done a lot of is giving those high bonuses to international arms. And then finally uh, Anderson Fermin, uh, shortstop center fielder from Dominican. Uh, got 400,000 there. So let's start with you, Bob. Um, what's your takeaway from the international class so far? Is there anybody here who you're particularly excited about?
1: Um, I, you know I think what you said that it's really hard to, to know this far away and just how much younger these players are with the international signings uh, signing at, you know 16 years old. I thought that the Baseball America write up on uh, Carlos Carrasco, the third baseman from Venezuela, was interesting just with his kind of six foot four size, easy power, and they identified him as um, one of the under $1 million um, range players that could be a potential breakout. Um, I think that, as you said, in previous years they've really gone and you could probably explain this a little bit better as as we did on, on, as you did on another pod that we were on that, you know, the, the quantity of pitchers that they've gone at and try to, you know, get different players in the lab and make improvements on their stuff and just go with quantity over quality with pitching is starting to, we're starting to see that a little bit more as those pitchers get a little bit further up the list. Um, you know, between Perales and Gonzalez um, and Manegro, you know, things of that nature. So it, it is interesting to see them spend uh, a little bit more on, on Reyes at 450 there.
2: Yeah, I really like the write-up on him. Um, he's 6'5", 180 pounds. They said he's a three-pitch guy. Um, fastball, slider, uh, change-up. Um, And here's a quote from Eddie Romero. It says, he's got every physical element that you would want. He's just someone that we don't see that often in the Dominican in terms of the components of possibly being a front end of the rotation kind of guy. He has quality arm action, a smooth delivery without a lot of effort. Um, There's already some power to his repertoire. And we love the fact that for a guy his size and age, he's got good command. So all of those things are super attractive in a young pitcher. So that's the guy who kind of piques my interest the most. Um, Keaton, what do you think about this class? Is there anybody here that you're particularly interested in?
0: Uh, Vladimir Asensio is the only one. Um, I think it's kind of, as you noted, it's a, it's kind of interesting this, the, the amount of bonus they gave to Reyes there. But uh, Asensio is the only one on their, this class who was in the MLB Pipeline Top 50. And interestingly enough, he was at the same development academy that Miguel Blaze came out of, which is pretty interesting. But he projects as a very toolsy outfielder, more average than power, but probably average game power by the time he actually develops. A lot of speed, pretty good defensively. Interesting prospect. Obviously, it's going to be five, six years before we actually kind of see some of this projection come to life. But um, him being the only one in the top 50 and coming from the same academy as Miguel
2: blaze, I think is pretty interesting. Yeah, that's a good fact. I did not know that. So that is pretty cool. All right. um, Let's move on to our next segment here. Um, You know, we we thought it would be a good time uh, considering the red Sox haven't really done anything for us to talk about the Boston team landscape. So we're going to be ranking the Patriots, um, you know, Red Sox, Celtics, Bruins, in terms of relevancy closest to a championship and future you are most confident about. So let's go ahead and start with uh, team relevancy. This is kind of how much people are talking about these teams, um, the vibe in the city about like, you know, where these teams are in general the way that i had it ranked um which i thought was kind of interesting considering the records of these teams but i think it's patriots one celtics two bruins three and red Sox. i'd say a pretty distant fourth at this point how do you guys have it
1: i have so i put the patriots first and i think that that I think that I, I agree with you on that, but it's the most interesting part of it is that they were one of the three tied for second worst teams in the league. And it's really all anyone is talking about on the radio right now, um, is you know, the next coach and the GM and Bill Belichick and the draft and if they're gonna take a quarterback and who that might be, and that probably will continue up until like April, when the winter sports teams are heading into the playoffs. Um, and maybe the further that we get away from Tom Brady and Bill Belichick, this will fall off a little bit, but that's what's getting ratings right now. And it's really not close. I mean, it's been like 80-90% to 90% of what you hear when you turn on sports radio or the, the TV shows locally right now. And it just speaks to what happens when you have a dynasty over two decades but you know there were four championships from the team that's in last right now (laughs) as well so it's really it's just gravitated towards such a football town um celtics bruins like for me it's like 2a and 2b Mm -hmm. i would agree that celtics are slightly ahead but this kind of gets split because most people are one or the other um there's some that are both celtics and bruins fans but you kind of have a split with the winter sports and you've got different groups of people that are kind of calling in, and and I feel like around here you have like a lot of Celtics and Bruins and NBA versus NHL disagreements. There's plenty of people that are into both, but they're kind of similar in terms of where they are in the standings as well. So, um, but I agree, Red Sox feel like a distant fourth right now.
0: So I took a little bit of a maybe different approach to this, but obviously being Uh, The only one not in New England, my approach to relevancy was which of these teams is getting talked about the most outside of New England, which is obviously the Patriots first, Celtics second because they're just absolutely steamrolling everybody, Red Sox third because they're kind of garbage, and then the Bruins just because they're performing exactly to everyone's expectations. So no one's really talking about them because I expect them to be really good.
1: They're not. Uh, they're not talking about Celtics on your local radio.
0: Well, they are about how good they are and steamrolling everybody. All right.
2: Yeah, I do think it's interesting that we all had the Patriots first, and I think that the that you make a good point, Bob, about the fact that you know they're really riding off of this two decades of unprecedented success. And obviously even with a bad Bad stretch stretch here here. um, Um, since Tom Brady has left, there's just so much to talk about with, you know, the end of Bill Belichick's time here and the, uh, you know, Gerard Mayo was just introduced as the new head coach today. And then what they're going to do with this high draft pick number three overall, there's just so much to talk about. And I think that there's probably – going to be at least three or four more years i would think um you know regardless of how the patriots perform that they will be sort of locked into that number one spot it's hard for me to think especially when you you turn on the radio like you said i mean if you listen to sports radio at all um it's 90 to 95 percent patriots talk on there even when the Celtics are in first place and the Bruins are in first place. Um, so it's, it's just really interesting that those are so locked in there. I do think it is also interesting, Keaton, that, you know, being the only one of us who is outside of the New England area, that the first place Bruins are still talked about a little bit less than the Red Sox, and maybe that just has to do with, you know, other, other parts of the country and how they look at the NHL. Uh, but I would have thought that that Chicago would have given a little bit more love with, uh, you know, Bedard madness and all that stuff going on in Chicago.
0: Yeah, I think it has more to do with just the, like, generally the, like, not necessarily positive stories, but isn't it like the, the thing to say with the news? It's like the, um, the terror and other people's misfortune is, Always has the higher higher ratings. So, the they, tend, Freud. Yeah, so they tend to lead, lead the news night with those. And so it's just kind of like the Red Sox are kind of a dumpster fire right now and people enjoy it. So they're talking about that more.
2: Yeah, always good to see uh, the king dethroned. All right, um, let's close the book on relevancy and move to our next category, Boston team rankings in terms of closest to a championship. Uh, the way I had this one was Celtics number one, Bruins number two, Red Sox number three, and Patriots a distant fourth. And uh, before I let you guys get to your rankings, I just want to explain my Patriots fourth year because I'm not sure that's something that each one of you guys are going to agree with. But I just think that the Patriots were a dumpster fire before Belichick got here and Brady got here. They have returned to being a dumpster fire. And I have, I'm actually scared to death of Kraft spending what Kraft spends on this team in a post Belichick, post Brady world. I think it could get really, really ugly around here with the Patriots. So that's why I even have the lowly Red Sox ahead of the Patriots in these rankings.
1: You, you want to start, Keaton? Because I have the same order, but maybe you have something different, and that would be more interesting.
0: Uh, Well, I had the Patriots ahead of the Red Sox. I think the Red Sox are the furthest. I mean, it's, uh, Celtics and Bruins 1-2, I don't think you can argue with that. But I have the Patriots ahead of the Red Sox because uh, I know, Jake, you were probably celebrating the fact that Belichick is gone, but uh, I wasn't so thrilled. I was really hoping he was going to stay. Patriots defense – was still really good this year. And it was pretty obvious that really they just were, they had such God awful quarterback play. Like I can think of like six of their losses that were um, one possession or, or less. They had the ball with under two minutes and Zappi and Jones just completely biffed it and couldn't run a two minute drill or just threw an interception or fumbled it away. Cost it up with a chance to either tie or take the lead. Um, and like even just a marginally competent quarterback in this team was probably like 500. So take this high pick, get one of these nasty young quarterbacks. Uh, and I think it's, it's going to be a pretty quick turnaround for the Patriots.
1: Yeah. What do you think, Bob? So, I mean, if you just look at odds, you get the Celtics are three to one this year. They have to be first Bruins are in that eight to one to 11 to one range. Socks are thirty-five to one to forty to one, depending on where you look. So, we haven't had next year's football come out yet, but I, I figure the Patriots will probably be further than that. So that's for the first year, but then beyond it, even if they have a high pick, that you know, God willing, they use on a quarterback. Belichick would have used it on a tackle from Rutgers, but <laughs> or um, a Navy
2: a Navy guy, <laughs>
1: former <laughs> lacrosse player. Keane's right about the defense. Like, I think that's solid, but they are just so lacking in skill position offensive players that I think it's going to take a couple of years, like maybe in the third season, which would be after three Red Sox seasons. I could see the Red Sox, you know, hitting their contention window before that, but just barely, you know. I just think that, that maybe year three, of building around a certain quarterback that they can bring in with that third pick is, uh, I don't know. That's the earliest that I think you can consider it. They might make the playoffs earlier than that. You know, Keaton saying that there were several games that they were in. They could have been a 7, 10, 8, and 9 team. And with an adequate quarterback, yeah, had a couple games of that. But I just, I, it's such a quarterback league. I just think they're a ways away from that. And Geez, they don't have a backup or a third string or anything that you could even... Look at positively. Thank God that nightmare is over.
2: Yeah, I mean, if they, if they whiff on a quarterback um, in this upcoming draft, that's gonna that's gonna really set them back. But you know, conversely, if they do hit on somebody um, like Keaton said, I mean, it's it's pretty easy to see a quick path back to contention, especially over the Red Sox, who all of a sudden just when they look in their pockets, all they find is lint these days. But, um, you know, I think one of the interesting things here is if we were going to do a consistency ranking, I think the Bruins are just the least likely team to ever bottom out. You know, we've seen the Celtics bottom out. We've seen the Sox bottom out. We've seen the Patriots bottom out this year. I don't remember ever seeing the Bruins bottom out. I mean, maybe they did, like, when I was really young. But the the Bruins are just so consistent. And the thing that strikes me with the Bruins is just – what a destination they seem to still be. Uh, year after year after year in the NHL, people just want to come here and, and guys want to stay once they are here. And I think that that is unique to the Bruins. Um, you know, I, I don't feel like the Celtics are a destination. They've had to build through the draft. The Red Sox are no longer a destination and the Patriots post Brady are not a destination anymore. So I'm curious. Before we move on to the future, what you guys think about my assessment about the Bruins being the only destination team? I think the Celtics are.
0: Uh, I know the the contracts in the NBA being really short kind of put that on rotation, but I feel like this offseason there's a lot of guys that join the team to do exactly what they're doing now and put them hopefully – finally over the top to close one of these things out and win another title um I feel like if they weren't attractive with um Tatum and Brown then those guys wouldn't have come here but then um with the really short contracts Tatum and Brown may not be here that much longer
1: yeah I I agree with that I think that the Celtics. I I I think that it's such a star-driven league that The Celtics could still get players to go there. But, you know, I'm not even going to pretend to understand the salary cap and what they can and can't do from year to year because there's so many workarounds with that. (laughs) I feel (laughs) like it changes
0: year to year, too. It's a mind fuck to keep up with.
1: I mean, that's right
2: now. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say you need a PhD to, like, figure out the NBA salary cap stuff. That stuff's insane.
1: And I, I think the Patriots can get there. If you're asking right now, I, I agree with what you said about those other teams. The Patriots, I think can get there because they have you know, good ownership and now have a, a good history and a whole lot of banners up there that went, you know, and great fans to play in front of when it's not a four and 13 team. So I think they can get back there in a couple of years and be a destination. Um, but right now, no.
2: All right, in the last category, uh, future you are most confident about, um, and this has to do with prospects, ownership, all that good stuff. Um, for me, I ranked it Celtics 1, Bruins 2, Red Sox 3, Patriots 4, and I'll just reiterate here, Patriots 4, because I just think that that 20-year that era was really about two people more than anything else, and I am... Until I see them succeed without those two guys, I am petrified of what the future holds for the Patriots. And I I hope I'm wrong because, you know, out of all these sports, uh, I like to watch baseball and football the most. Um, so I, I hope I'm wrong and I will continue to watch the Patriots, even if they are, you know, a four-win team for, for years. But uh, it just scares the hell out of me.
0: Yeah, I know I said it was going to be a quick turnaround, but... Um, realistically, we're looking at a rookie head coach, youngest head coach in the NFL, and uh, a massive question mark at who's going to be the quarterback. So, I think right now, as we're doing these ranks, I think the Patriots got to be fourth. I think you nailed it. I had the same, same four.
1: So, I guess you know you got to define how long the future is. If you if we're talking. Four six or hours. five years <laughs> we're talking four or five years you know who I'm most confident about it's Celtics it's, like I said it's a star league I think that they can be a destination to bring other pieces in kind of like they did this year and you've got got a GM who not only has the guts to make big moves and big trades which can't say about some other teams here but also has made good moves and has put just a super efficient starting five together that is going to be tough to beat this year. I put the Patriots second, partially because of the ownership and partially because they have that high pick that I think they can use on a QB and hopefully have a solid core with defense and be two or three years away. I put the Red Sox third, And then I put the Bruins fourth because they've just screwed it up when it matters for my entire life. And outside of that one championship, which was uh, incredible goaltending, it's been a whole lot of disappointments. And I know the least about hockey out of these four, but, man, I drive that bandwagon when April comes around, and it tends to go into the the sidewall within a couple of weeks every year. So it seems like you're kind of judging
2: this on like what team you think is most likely in the future to win a championship, Um, which I think is a a completely fair way of judging it because that's what we measure here in Boston. Um, But that is interesting. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about like the epic choke jobs from, from the Bruins, despite having these good teams over the year and the fact that the other teams have got it done, but I am fascinated by your confidence in Robert Kraft and Jonathan Kraft, post Brady, post Belichick, like, can you explain that a little more to me? Like, why do you think they are gonna be able to replicate success without those two guys?
1: Well, i i, I do hope that uh, I hope we have Robert for uh, an extended period of time here, but I just kind of have felt that he generally has a i see so many psychotic owners around the nfl (laughs) like that
2: guy tepper from right throwing (laughs)
1: drinks at fans um you know sexually assaulting cheerleaders whatever dan snyder was doing down there like there's just so much craziness and ineptitude and like some of the stories that have come out about just I don't know some of it's some of the different franchises and well of course you know Bob Kraft had a little fun himself but (laughs) I've gotten past that I I just think that he is level-headed I think that he will see things through to try to hire a coach a coordinator and a quarterback that can work together over several years and won't just make a rash decision and fire somebody after a year and then you've got a quarterback and a coordinator and a coach that you've got, you know, no consistency within. And I feel like he can have the patience to build towards that where I see so many other teams that uh, I, I just think the Crafts have a better understanding of football. They've seen success. They know how passionate the fan base is. I mean, you saw what the letter that he sent out a year ago. When the season ended that this is not acceptable it's not up to our standards and we're going to do everything that we can to turn it around like i feel like those statements are a lot more emphatic than the nonsense that i hear from the red sox ownership
2: i think that's a good point um if i was to rank just ownership purely on uh, out of like which ownership group i like the best out of the boston teams i think wick has been the best owner in the whole city Um, I, I would put Kraft second and I would probably put John Henry third, even though I despise John Henry and I'd put the Bruins owner, whose name is escaping me right now. Um, Jacob's, Jacob's, Jeremy Jacobs, right? Or Charlie Jacobs. Which one? I think it's Jeremy. Both, both Jeremy, Charlie. There's a kid, right? There's a kid who's involved, but I don't know. Um, yeah, the the Jacobses are absentee trash owners. Um, who, yep. they only succeed because Boston's a destination and it's a cap league. But um, yeah, I don't know. I I think the the Celtics and and Patriots are like kind of head and shoulders above
1: in terms of ownership in this city. It's a good exercise though. Got me thinking about. A lot of things I haven't thought about in a while.
2: Yeah. Keaton, any thoughts before we wrap up the uh, the old Boston segment? Nope. All right. Let's get to our listener questions, and then we're going to get on out of here. We have a listener question here from Patty OD. He says, I was reading a thread online, and someone said this was the least amount of hope they've had as a Red Sox fan in their lifetime. Someone else said actually 2012 was worse and it got me thinking which era felt more hopeless as a fan. I think that now is worse because in 2012 at least we had Ortiz, Pedroia, Ellsbury, and Lester. We even had uh, Buchholz uh, thought that he might be special. We heard about Xander waiting in the wings. Lastly, it still felt like FSG gave a shit. I think the MLB roster feels more barren by comparison. And although the minors are allegedly stocked, there seems to be no pitching ready to make an impact at the MLB level next season. Plus it feels like FSG really doesn't give a shit. So what do you think? Should we have more hope now or was it better in 2012? And remind me what time John Henry will be answering questions at winter weekend. Patio D. Uh, Great email there. Um, Let's go with you. First, Keaton, which era felt more hopeless to you, now or 2012? Neither. For me, it was 2003. I'll tell you why.
0: Because now and in 2012, at that time, we had done it. We had done it multiple times. So we had seen what it took, and we knew what we needed to do to get back there. In 2003, we did not. Even though the team was really good, we're firing the manager, coming off another disappointment, hadn't tasted glory in 86 years. We didn't know how to do it because we hadn't seen it be done. 2004, 2007, we saw it. We knew what we needed to do. So after 2012, or as it's happening, we knew what we needed to do to get back to that kind of glory. We knew what kind of team we needed to build to do it. And then we did it two more times. And so we're sitting here now with four titles in the last 20 years. And I still feel confident that we're the same organization that's won four titles and can do it again. But in 2023, we just hadn't done it. So we had no idea what to do to get there. And then just having another massive letdown with Aaron Boone, it just felt like we were never, ever going to get there. So I feel like that was when I was the lowest.
2: That is a tremendous point. Um, I agree because we also like had no concept that Ortiz was going to end up being like this. We thought he was going to be pretty good, but we had no idea like what he was going to become. And it seemed like Pedro was still good, but sort of maybe fading a little bit. Um, They were still a pitcher short. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Uh, 2003 was the worst I've ever felt in my life as a sports fan about anything. Um, So yeah, I mean, that still goes down as like the worst feeling of all time. Um, But I I think right now is much, much worse than 2012. And like he, he named all the reasons why Ortiz, Pedroia, Ellsbury, Lester, Xander coming up. Um, Those were all reasons to get pumped. And uh, right now there are not that many reasons to be excited.
1: What do you think, Bob? Yeah, it depends on how old you are, right? I mean, 2003, you might have been seven, eight years old, and you didn't have a, a grasp on how hopeless that felt and how many uh, kicks in the nuts that we had received for several years running then, and for some people, eight eight decades. Um, if you're 26, 27 years old, then this is the worst. Um it's really still hard to believe that bo- that there was an entire season of Bobby Valentine. I like, <laughs> like, like I think I blocked most of that season <laughs> out of my brain, and I'm looking at this roster, and I really can't like. There's players on here that I don't remember. Aaron Cook threw 94 innings for the Red Sox that year. Vicente Padilla, oh,
0: the Padilla Flotilla,
1: yeah. Alfredo Aceves was. The main closer, he had 25 saves, but he was 2-10 with a 536 ERA. Um, And just everything about Valentine, it was so crazy. But for me, it was like, I felt, we knew he was going to get fired. And I felt like, with the core that Patty mentioned, and what was coming up, that it could easily turn around and get to a World Series team, which it did the next year. I, don't, I wouldn't say I expected them to win it in 2013, but you knew that it could turn pretty quickly with that great core that they had. <clears throat> and I don't feel that at all right now. And yeah, I mean, 2012 was five years after 07, and we're five, six years since the last championship, but they feel a lot further away from, uh, from the core that is needed, ex- and that was an experienced core that had won multiple titles least with Ortiz and those other guys had won one. Um, so yeah, I mean, since, since Oh three, this is the worst. I agree. Yep. It's a shitty time to be a Red Sox fan.
2: And Zach has our final question. He says, how many pitching innings can we expect from each of you this year? Uh, I feel like the only realistic chance to give us any innings is is Bob at this point. I don't know, Keaton, what kind of Whoa. shape is your arm in?
0: I, I feel like I should take offense to that. I, I, am I not the youngest?
2: I mean, you are, but like you're going to be moving to London and stuff like that, you know, like are you going to be even available? Maybe you'll pitch <laughs> like the When's the, the last London bullpen series?
0: You oh, um uh... Shit, yeah, like 14 years ago. <laughs> uh, I mean, I was a I was a relief pitcher in high school because I didn't have the stamina to go more than an inning. So
1: you're fresh. fresh.
0: Yeah. I feel like, okay, so realistically, putting me on a mound against the major leaguers right now, I feel like I can get through a third of an inning. Um, But I'm probably going to give up four runs first but I feel like I can pitch someone into an out within five at-bats.
2: Well, that's better than I could do, because I think I could I could probably uh, get it over the plate enough for uh, a couple meatballs to be hammered out of, out of Fenway Park. But, uh, you know, I think I would essentially be a BP pitcher at this
1: point. So. Looking at... I'm looking up our men's league website, and I threw 44 innings last year. So I would say a year older. Let's scale that back to 35.
2: How many outs do you realistically think you could get in a game?
1: One. None. None. I think I could get one. Well,
2: you could get somebody to
1: roll over on one, right? No, you could get somebody <laughs> to hit <them>. a <laughs> absolute rocket at the shortstop that happens to land in a glove. Line.
0: Yeah, no, I'm I'm going a third of an inning because it's going to be a 420-foot
2: bomb to the triangle.
1: <laughs> right. Everyone's swinging out of their shoes, and it, it's just short.
2: I feel like I would get a swing and miss on my first pitch just because nobody would be expecting a 68-mile-an-hour meatball. <laughs>
1: I just. Uh, so you think that they would be expecting you to throw 95 when they saw you in the mouth? Yeah. What? Here <laughs> comes Jake Debra running in the
2: bullpen.
0: A 68 miles an hour flat with no movement. Oh, this... You think someone's whiffing on that?
2: Uh, that's a great way to end the show. <laughs> All right. You can follow us on Twitter. You can uh, give me some tips on how to get some major leaguers out at, at Dev Jake. You can follow Bob at BobOzgood15. You can follow Keaton at the Spoken Keats. And uh, please give us a follow, rate, review, all that stuff helps us get into people's ears and we appreciate you listening. We'll be back with you next week.